All week, I would say that I have been planning uh, to finish John's gospel. I have uh, just two weeks left in that, and I really had been working all week in John 21 at the restoration of Peter, but I finally yielded to the, I believe, the Spirit of God in my own soul late on Friday night, and so I want to bring something special to you today from the Word of God regarding really just a biblical response to the coronavirus. I think as many of you know, since the beginning of this year, we've been hearing um, about a virus known as coronavirus. There are 69 different species of this virus, seven of which can affect humans, and the rest of the viruses and the species are really contracted by animals, mostly pigs, bats, and other small mammals. And its name comes from the fact that on the surface of the virus, there are protrusions that correspond to the proteins that the virus uses to adhere to other cells that it wants to affect. Uh, The medical community, interestingly, has known about these viruses since 1960. However, it wasn't until 2002, 2003, when the general population began to become aware of them due to an outbreak of one of the viruses that occurred in China. Eventually, that was called SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. That virus was contained in China. Ten years later, another strain of coronavirus emerged in a place called Saudi Arabia. The epidemic was also contained. Sadly, 800 people died in that place. That virus was called MERS, M-E-R-S, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And so we really wouldn't hear about a similar virus until December of 2019. The first reports of the virus emerged again in China, and that virus has been referred to as SARS or COVID-2. The disease actually is known as COVID-19 or coronavirus 2019. And obviously, here we are today. It has sent our world into, I think it would be fair to say, a panic. It sent our world into fear, and some of that, rightfully so. We want to keep that virus from being uh, contracted all over the globe, and we understand that. But sometimes people ask in the midst of that, where is God in the midst of chaos. And the the scripture would come, and people are also asking the question, can I trust him? I read a little bit ago of a Christian husband who flew in a private plane to give his testimony at an evangelistic meeting. He took his son with him, and on the way home, They ran into an electrical storm that caused that plane to go down and crash. Sadly, both the father and son were killed. 
And a Christian friend, in an effort to comfort the bereaved wife and the mother, said this, quote, one thing you can be sure of is that God had no part in this accident. The writer went on to facetiously wonder if God was looking the other way when the pilot got into trouble. I mean, that's just, where was God in the midst of that? And I think, evidently, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without our Father's will, but apparently, a plane can crash with a Christian aboard can. Where is God in the midst of this? How do we look at this and biblically respond to the coronavirus? Steve Lawson, in one of his writings, said in the minds of some, the user-friendly God is slightly sovereign, enthroned, but not empowered, presiding, but not prevailing, trying, but not triumphing. God is pacing back and forth in heaven, wringing his hands over the unfolding events on earth. Is that God... Or do the scriptures say that the God that we know in the Bible is the supreme ruler of the universe, exercising to its divinely appointed end for which every matter was created, even the coronavirus? Emphatically, we would say the later is true. The Bible specifically says this, that God is in sovereign control over all events, all rulers, all history, and even our own life, even corona, guiding everything to its divinely appointed end for which they were created. So I want to just bring you this morning a biblical response to the coronavirus. And I want to direct you in our time that we have here to what the Bible teaches on God's sovereignty and why your hope needs to be in God alone. And what I want us to see here is just, I'll put it this way, three lenses, if you will, almost like a camera of God's sovereignty that will allow you to think correctly about the person and character of God and allow you to think correctly about this virus. If you're here and you're at home, you can take notes on this, write these scriptures down, talk with your family on these scriptures, and, uh, and that way it might be helpful to you. These three lenses that I want to look at magnify God's sovereignty. I want to show you first a biblical illustration of God's sovereignty. We'll just call that kind of a wide-angle lens, and I'll first start with the illustration. Secondly, I want to begin to move that wide lens down to a more narrow focus and give you a biblical definition of God's sovereignty. And then thirdly, if we can, just zoom in on that lens to your heart, to your life. I want to look at a practical application of God's sovereignty and be able to give you hope even this morning. 
So let's dive into the scripture. Let's look at God's sovereignty. We'll begin first with a a wide lens, and we'll look first at a biblical illustration of God's sovereignty. A biblical illustration of God's sovereignty. I want you to take your Bible, or you can turn it on, we would say, and look in the book of Daniel. Look over first as we begin to the book of Daniel. And we'll find ourselves in Daniel chapter 2. I think many of you know that in the book of Daniel, the nation of Israel, at least one part of the nation of Israel, was carried away into captivity, I think in 586 B.C., that southern portion. The world, is, at least the nation knew it, was falling apart. They were taken into captivity. And God's sovereignty is seen in the book of Daniel, all through the book of Daniel, namely that he's ruling over governmental affairs, and it's unmistakably seen throughout this book. If you look in Daniel chapter 2, as Daniel's about to reveal a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, it says in 2.19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel, a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding." There, you would go on to see that Daniel begins to interpret that dream, that in the midst of a world unraveling, in the midst of the nation being carried away, in the midst of these young boys, even at that point, teenagers in the book of Daniel, being tracked off to another place called Babylon, it says right there, he removes kings and he sets up kings. Then as you track through the book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a Second dream, a second dream. Look over to chapter four. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar greatly desired that that second dream would be interpreted for him for understanding, Um, but none of his key leaders, magicians, could come up with the truth, nor did they want to even guess at this point. And then Daniel enters again, and I want you to pick up at 417. Here, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the division or the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that uh, the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And there, Daniel would be given wisdom and insight into that second dream. In fact, look down in verse 25. He begins to interpret it for this all-powerful king of the world at that known time. Verse 25 of chapter 4, that you shall be driven, talking to Nebuchadnezzar, from among men, and your dwelling shall be the beast of, with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. 
And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms or the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. And there you have it. He began to tell Nebuchadnezzar what would happen to his life. That in the midst of this world falling apart, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of tragedy, God is on his throne. He is reigning. He is predicting. He is granting Nebuchadnezzar dreams and giving the interpretation exactly as to how it would come out to the prophet Daniel. In fact, look what happened in 429 of Daniel, actually in 28, all this that was prophesied in that dream, basically, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Stop there just for a second. Can you just see him walking on the top of his roof, overlooking all of Babylon, overlooking what was created in Babylon, which was called one of the seven wonders of the world, an irrigation system that was exquisite. It was one of the most beautiful things in the known world at that time. And as he walks on the top of his roof, he says there isn't this the great Babylon. Isn't this what I have built? It is my mighty power that has done this. It is my royal residence. And this is not for my people, let alone this is not for God's glory. He says it was for the glory of my majesty. You say, well, what happened to this proud king? Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will Immediately, it says in verse 33, the, world was, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, for his body was wet with the dew of heaven until, the, until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Wow. This is an illustration of God's sovereignty. One moment, just imagine he is the most powerful man in the world. And then the very next moment, he is reduced to an animal-like creature on all fours at his own royal residence. I mean, imagine what his family thought, that the king was out on the grass He's out on all fours. His hair grew, began to grow like a beast. His nails were like a bird's claw. He went from being the braggart of Babylon and he went, to, went from eating K 
caviar, if you will, to eating crab grass on all fours at the royal residence. You say, well, what happened at the end? Well, if you go down to verse 34, it says there, at the end of the days, I, at the end of the days, those were seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He rules, he reigns, he's king over nations, he's king over events. Listen, every nation and every event, Calvin said, depends on God's providence. And Calvin said that nothing happens but what he has decreed. I mean, the truth even now to encourage you this morning is God is in control. God is in charge. He is the one who we would say is the boss. He is in sovereign control over the entire world. There's a wide lens, a biblical illustration of Daniel, of his sovereignty. Read those opening six chapters. But let me bring it down a little closer by way of definition. It's a second lens. Maybe we can call this a 50 millimeter, okay? It's a, it's a biblical definition of God's sovereignty. Let me say that as we begin to unpack what his sovereignty is, that his sovereignty cannot be separated from God's omnipotence. In other words, you understand he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. In other words, his sovereignty cannot be separated from his unlimited power. It is to say, again, that God is in sovereign control over all events of nature, over every aspect of history, over every event in this world. In fact, his sovereign will is the final cause of all things. He, the Bible says, is the king. The Bible says of God that he is Lord of the heavens and earth. The Bible says that he is the ruler of all things. So, beloved, no king, no politician, no doctor can speak and have it happened. The Bible tells us if the Lord had not first decreed it to happen and made it happen, or we would say, or permitted it to happen. No one can say, I will do this or that, and have it happen apart from God's sovereign will. Listen to some of these scriptures to help define his sovereignty. Second Chronicles 20 verse 6 says, O Lord, 
are you not God in heaven? And the answer would be yes. You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand, 2 Chronicles 26, are power and might, and none is able to withstand you. He rules. He reigns. It ought to comfort our heart. Psalm 47, verse 8, says that God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. He is a king. Job 12, 23, the writer said that he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and then he leads them away, Job 12, 23. I mean, even when you begin to think of his sovereignty, not just over the church, but over the globe, you have a text in Habakkuk in the Old Testament in 1.6 where the prophet said there that I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, to seize dwellings not their own. He raised up the Chaldeans to punish Israel. He raised up an unbelieving pagan nation to accomplish his purpose. The psalmist said in twenty two twenty eight, kingship belongs to the Lord. It says in Psalm twenty two twenty eight that he rules over the nations. So in the midst of this fear, in the midst of this chaos, God is on his throne. God is reigning. In fact, in Isaiah 14, 24, it says that the Lord of hosts has sworn, and this was against Assyria. He said, as I have planned, so shall it be, and I, as I have purposed, so shall it stand, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? You can't annul it. What he's purposed will be accomplished. In fact, in Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Plans of his heart to all generations. Let me see if I could just point you to some definitions. You could write this down. I think it will help you and all of our hearts as we think of this time. Let me just give you a definition of his sovereignty, okay? It is his right to control all things. His right to control all things. And then in his sovereignty, there's another word and the next word is providence. You hear that sometimes mentioned together. Sovereignty is his right to control all things. Providence is the means by which God controls all things. So he's sovereign, exclusive control over all things, but his providence is the means by which he carries his control out. Augustine, the church father, said, 
very strongly, but very succinctly. Nothing happens unless God wills it to happen. In fact, he went on to say, he either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. So he wills it to happen, permits it to happen, or he brings it about himself. Another theologian by the name of Philip Hughes said this, under God, all things without exception are fully controlled. (laughs) All things are without exception fully controlled, he said, despite all the appearances to the contrary. Okay? So providence then is God that is active in all that happens in the world and he is sovereignly directing all those things to their appointed ends. I suppose I could give you some examples. I wish we could go through these, but maybe I could just give you just a a few of what we're talking about there within the nature of his sovereignty and in the nature of his providence. for, For example, God predicted in advance by name before he was born that Cyrus would help rebuild Jerusalem, Isaiah 44. He predicted, it's amazing, by name, the guy wasn't even born, by name, before he was born, that Cyrus would rebuild Jerusalem, Isaiah 44. Another one, and I think you may be aware of this, is God predicted in advance Pharaoh's choice, remember that? To honor the butler and hang the baker, Genesis 40. It happened exactly as it was foretold. Thirdly, God predicted that sinful men, as we've been studying, would pierce Jesus' side five to seven hundred years before that happened. And he predicted in advance that they would not break one of his bones. Psalm 34, Zechariah 12, John 19. God reigns, he's in control, he's in sovereign control, and his providence is the working out of that control. In fact, God predicted that our Lord's garments would be divided at the cross. Psalm 22, John 19. And there's so many more. He is in control. Listen to how R.C. Sproul stated it. He said, in this world, ruled by God, there are no chance events. There is no such thing as chance or fate. Chance does not exist. Fate, F-A-T-E, does not exist. 
Sproul said, God is in providential control over all the events of a nation. Listen, everything that occurs, occurs under the hand of a sovereign God. And once you understand that, life takes on a different perspective. In a universe controlled by God, there's no chance happenings, no mistakes, good and bad, even all fall under his control. In fact, I would say it this way to you, your mind's probably working now, God's sovereignty even overrules the evil intentions of man. It overrules even the evil intentions of man. You say like what, Scott? Well, do you remember the example of Joseph's brothers who were filled with hate, did evil unto him, forced him into a pit, and he only went into a pit after they desired to kill him. They sold him into slavery, evil, wickedly, and yet Joseph said in Genesis 50, as for you, God meant evil against me, or as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? For good. So he's even overruling wicked, evil intentions. You say, well, what about Satan himself? What about Satan's evil? So I would ask you a question, is God and Satan in a ring boxing as a couple of heavyweight prize fighters? Does God win barely by a split decision? Does he barely win? Does he win at the end? I mean, it's true, according to John 12, 31, as we saw, that Satan is the ruler of this world. We, we know from 2 Corinthians 4 that he's called God with a little g of this world. We know from the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that he's called the prince of the power of the air. Yet God is described in his word as holding sovereign dominion over the world. So how can you say that? Well, just a couple. In the book of Acts, it asserts that behind Satan and behind the wicked intentions of the Roman army, of Pontius Pilate, of the Jewish people, that God was in control of all of that. How do you say that? Acts 2.23, Jesus, there the prophet said, or the apostle, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I mean, if there was an evil ever committed on the face of this earth, it was crucifying the sinless one. It was crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was delivered up by Pilate, yes. By the Romans, yes. By the Jewish people, yes. By the crowds who shouted crucify him, yes. But he was delivered up according, the Bible says, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In fact, later in the book of Acts, in Acts 4.27... It says, truly, in this city, there were gathered together against 
the holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, grasp this language, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Amazing statements. In fact, it was John Piper who said behind Satan's limited freedom to act is the hand of a sovereign God who's guiding all things for the good of his people. And I would add to his own glory. So you might ask, and I bring you to this, how should God's sovereignty affect my life today? Thanks for asking. Um, Let me bring you to the third lens here. We'll call it the zoom lens on your life and my life. How should his sovereignty, his control over all things, how can his providence, the means by which he carries it out, affect my own life? Well, let me make this application for all of your life, not just for the coronavirus, but for all of your life, is that nothing will ever enter into your life that God has not either decreed or allowed. He will, let me say it again, never allow anything to enter your life that God has not decreed or allowed. You look back, and for some of you, that might be hard. You see things maybe in a wicked, evil way done against you. And yes, they were wicked, and yes, people are accountable for their actions, but overriding all of that is a sovereign God. How can you say that, Pastor? Well, I can say it this way, and you know the scripture, but sometimes we cite it, and we cite it, and we fail to think on it, is Romans 8.28, where it says that we know that for those who love God, in that sense it's defined, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our, what? Good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The providence of God, beloved, is arranging all circumstances of your life for his glory and for your good. And when I think he says all things, he's not just talking about the good things. God is so sovereign that he could even take our sin and work them for our good and to his glory for the greatest end. All things. Jerry Bridges said this. Listen carefully. He said, not only are the willful evil acts of other people under God's sovereign control, so also are the failures of other people. And then he went to apply it this directly. Did another driver go through a red light, strike your car, and send you to the hospital with multiple fractures? Did a physician fail to detect your cancer 
in its early stages when it would have been treatable? Did you end up with an incompetent instructor in a very important college class or an inept supervisor who blocked your business career? Bridges went on to say all of these circumstances, all of these events are under the controlling hand of our sovereign God who is working them out in our lives for his good and his glory, for our good and his glory. Listen, do you believe the promises of God in Scripture for your marriage, for your children, for your Maybe it's a fair question to state this morning. Retirement, for your finances, for the stock market, for your health. What would you say on all of those issues? Listen, let me just encourage you as we put the zoom on my heart and your heart. Let me just put some scriptures out there of a biblical response to the coronavirus. First, beginning with a biblical illustration of a wide lens with Daniel. Secondly, moving closer to a definition of God's sovereignty. And then thirdly, zooming in on a practical application for you this week and in the weeks to come. I'll give you some scriptures, and maybe you could write them down and memorize them, and you're at home today. Maybe these are scriptures for you to memorize this week at school for all of you who are at home school this week who are not in school. Isaiah says this in 41.10, one of my favorite verses, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's a word of practical application. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not. He said, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God, and I will strengthen you, and I will help you. And so, as many might panic around us, the exhortation to us is to fear not. Then, I think in the New Testament, not only a statement of Isaiah 41.10 on the character of God, but on the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's so familiar to you that it might become so familiar that we forget the power of it. Jesus would say to you, even this morning, and as he would say to me in our own hearts this week, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then this question, are they, are you not of more value than they? 
if he's going to take care of the sparrow, then he would certainly take care of his children. Of course, that is followed by this command to not be what? Anxious. To not be anxious. And I would say to us, even this morning, anxiety always, biblically, is something in the future. It's something unknown. And the future and the unknown creates this word called anxiety. And Jesus would say to you, even this morning, and to your family, and to you as an individual, and to you as a single, do not be anxious. And then what's fascinating, he says this in Matthew 6, do not be anxious. And it sounds so mundane as to what we shall, what's the first thing? Eat. So don't any of you get in a fist fight at Costco, okay? I mean, think about that. That's the problem. They're anxious. They're emptying the warehouses. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have and hold good stewardship and provide for your family. But we're watching a world that's in a frenzy of what's going to happen. And it may get worse before it gets better. But Jesus says, don't be anxious as to what we shall eat or what shall, or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. So the Bible is it zooms in on your heart. And maybe you listening at home. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And then the Lord Jesus Christ would say to my heart and your heart, do not be anxious. You know, one time I, I read that sometimes when the city of London gets fogged over, that they would say that if you condensed all of that fog in all of the city of London, all of that water could be squeezed down to a glass of water. That's it, scientifically. And so what's amazing is that though the fog brings confusion, it really is just the size of a glass of water. Did not our Lord say, in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Listen, let me remind you that you have a faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, lo, I am with you, what? Always. You carry about inside of you the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, whom it said in John's gospel as we've been studying, that not only will he be with you, he will be what? In you. And so the Holy Spirit takes up residence within our own hearts. But then God the Father said in John 14 through 16, that I also will take up my abode in you. So the Father loves you, fear not. The Son loves you and would say to you, don't be anxious. And the Holy Spirit lives in you 
seeking to produce in you and in me the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and what's the second one? Joy. Joy. I need that. We need that. Maybe the writer of Hebrews would say something real specifically to you today, to me. I thought it was kind of ironic. I don't know if I would say ironic, but it's the passage where he's quoting out of the Old Testament, did the writer of Hebrews in 13.5, where it said, I will never leave you or what? Forsake you. But what's interesting is what comes prior to that. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Interesting. Lots of people have lost thousands. Some have lost millions just this last week. Some, I'm sure, lost billions. And whatever you might have had is reduced in a great way. He'd say, keep free from the love of money. Be content, Grace Church of the Valley, with what you have. Because God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen, how does this practical application work into my life as a college student? as a high school student, as children, as adults, as grandparents, whatever it may be. You know this by heart. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. Now, I don't, I don't think he's qualifying that, except for this. Except for this. Except when you detect cancer inside your nose is... George did in his sinus cavity two weeks ago. Or when Dan Wilde had a stroke. No, he, he would say to us, and all things as church members to these precious people, do not be anxious about anything. Now certainly wisdom needs to come in there. I understand that. You can pray for me. I've got two speaking engagements and I'm not quite sure what that should look like both in Mexico and even Texas. But I know the Lord would tell me, don't be anxious, Scott, about anything. And you know he doesn't finish there. But in everything by what? Prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all, what? Understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. Those are scriptures at home you can talk about this week. So here is, beloved, a biblical illustration from Daniel, a biblical definition that he's in control. And here's a practical application of God's sovereignty found in his word for this purpose that you might have hope. Fear not, do not be anxious. You have a faithful high priest. God said he will never, li- never leave you or forsake you. And 
He told us to not be anxious about anything. I want you to talk about these scriptures in small groups this week. Fathers and mothers, I want you to walk through these truths with your family. Do that this week. And would you not say, I think it's all of our heart, what a precious time, amen, to be salt and light in our community. What a great time to, and a great opportunity to show the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I can give you one practical thing you can do. Inside the Lord's Day Bulletin, we've got Matt Tebow arriving on Thursday. We're trying to fill his pantry full of food. We're trying to get them gift cards that will help them move in. Listen, if you want a project, if you want to do something and be proactive, as I know so many in our church want to do, bring that food and get those gift cards and bring them in by Wednesday into our church office. And we would love to extend those to that precious family that comes to minister to us. Um, and minister the gospel to us. It's right there in the bulletin. There's three specific things.